bashful mom. Let's say. Uh, God really put a desire on my heart about 13 years ago to move to Nashville. Um, even before I had even visited Nashville, for some reason, um, that dream was planted. Four years ago, the opportunity finally came up for um, a job opportunity for my husband, Seth, and we uh, jumped at it, and within about a month's time, we packed up and, and moved here. It took me a while to to find a place that felt like home uh, as far as a, a job opportunity for me here. I had connected with uh, a lady who started uh, my website, The Nashville Mom. Her name is Lindsay. And then Lindsay decided to start another business. And I just really was sad to see that go away. Um, and just over some conversations that I had with my husband, he could tell that it was something I really um, was kind of passionate about and he just continued over a couple months time to encourage me just to reach out to her and, and see if I could come on and help. It took her a little bit of time. I kind of felt like I'd asked her for one of her children, you know, um, but she really just said, hey, I want you to take it and run with it. It really was stepping out, um, trying to be a little more fearless in the Whole situation and I think sometimes when we are scared that that's when God's working that's when he's saying he's pushing you he's um, kind of encouraging you to take that step of faith because you never know um, what roads or doors may open through I really feel like this was one of those dreams I just didn't know that was there and I can see uh, his purpose the purposes he's given me um, through it so it's really been neat to see how it's all worked out and how um, little by little, he kind of was planting those dreams in my heart, and uh, now they've come to fruition. Well, this morning, if you can remember back this far, I want you to go back to elementary school with me, okay? And I want you to imagine that it's a Tuesday afternoon, and you're on the playground, it's during PE class, and the teacher decides to do something that would majorly be frowned up on today. She picks two team captains and says, in this game of kickball, we are going to pick teams. I, you know, I think about that right now, and it seems really barbaric that this is the way that this used to happen. But my PE teacher named Mrs. Chandler used to do this all the time, and she would name two team captains, and she would just let these fourth graders duke it out in what I call the game of survival of the fittest. Because regardless of, of whether or not you were picked first or you were picked last, you probably have a, a, a memory or a, a, a realization of what that, feel, what that felt like. Because as the joy of getting picked was awesome, then there was also the uneasiness of this group that was getting smaller and and smaller. And then eventually it was just down to two people. Now, consequently, if you were the next to last person picked, that was always the happiest guy in school because he wasn't last picked. Nobody remembers the second to last guy who didn't get picked. And he's like, finally, there was somebody else besides me. Thinking back about it now, I, I can't imagine that that would ever fly now in a, you know, in a elementary school setting. But back in those golden days, for those young whippersnappers in the room, this is how elementary school used to work. If you were one of those captains, you would obviously have some measuring stick that you were using to determine who would be on your team. You would think to yourself, well, he's the tallest, or she has the best accuracy with the kickball, or she's my girlfriend, so I got to pick her, and then I got to pick my girlfriend's best friend as well. You know, whatever the case might be, so forth and so on. But little did we know that this picture of the schoolyard playground would actually serve as a pretty good illustration of how life was going to work out for a lot of us. It's actually a picture that some of us are all too familiar with. Because what do you and I do? We tend to navigate through life and we pick the best and the brightest. We hope that we're just not the one who is chosen last. Or we say, well, you know what? 
he's the loudest guy in the room, so we got to listen to him, but she's quiet and inexperienced, so therefore, does she really have anything to offer? It might be the way that society operates. It might be really familiar for you and I, but my question for you is, is that the way God operates? Is that actually a clear picture? Is that actually a good illustration of how God uses us and how God works in our life? Because see, just because we're familiar with it doesn't mean that it's necessarily good. Does God operate on all of the same methodologies that we operated under, that Mrs. Chandler operated under when she was allowing people to pick their teams in kickball? Or, or does God have a different equation altogether? Does God have something else that he is looking for? Does God have some other character or some other qualifier or some other characteristic that he's looking for in the people that he chooses to use? Or does God just operate the way that the world operates? I'm going to seek to answer that question for you out of God's word this morning as we launch into this new summer series called I Am David. And we're going to be unpacking specifically this morning the way that God worked in David's life, the reasons that David was chosen. And as a result, what can we learn from this story and from, from what it is that God would desire to do in and through us as we make ourselves available to him? I'm going to ask you to pray with me for just a minute as we dig into God's word. Lord, thank you for meeting us here in this place. We thank you that you have a plan for each and every one of our lives and that that plan is to give us a hope and a future. Perhaps this morning we're struggling to understand what your plan and your purposes are for us, but I pray that you would show us really clearly through your word that you have a plan, that you have something that you want us to do, and regardless if the world would look at us as anybody that's worthy of anything, that you would remind us that what you see is not what the world sees but that you see something deep down in our heart. And I pray that we would be solidly devoted and solidly dedicated to do what you would desire to do in our lives. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. And amen. Now, this character that we're going to be studying over the course of the summer is this guy named David, and he's an amazing character. And I've been really looking forward to our time together, but specifically, as I alluded to already, this morning is going to be about God's plan for David and what we can learn about our plan as a result of what we learn about the way that David was specifically chosen. Now, our study in the summer is going to go through the books of First and Second Samuel. And what we're going to be looking at are these amazing stories of King David. You're going to see these stories of like his heroism when it comes to Goliath, and you're going to see the stories of sin and frustration when it comes to David and Bathsheba. But the stories in First and Second Samuel have a namesake of this prophet Samuel. Now, these books represent a very interesting time in the history of the Israelites, and our study is not about Samuel. Our study is about David, but like I allude to very frequently in here with you guys, you kind of have to understand the context of these passages of Scripture to really understand what's going on because these stories don't just stand alone. And so First and Second Samuel, they tell of an era where God's chosen people the Israelites were yearning for a king. They were yearning for a human king. God had never intended for them to have a king. It wasn't God's desire that they had a human king because he was their king. He was the one that was orchestrated everything in their life, but they wanted a king. Now, why did they want a king? Well, if you go back a little bit in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, here's the answer to that question. Why did they want a king? In verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together And they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. We want a king because all the other nations have a king. All the other surrounding nations have a king, and we don't want to be left out. Now, P.S., this is where your dad got that phrase. Would you jump off a cliff if everybody else jumped off a cliff? 
Some of you have needed to listen to your dad because he had a lot of wisdom. There was actually some truth in what he was saying. You're saying, well, that's what everybody else is doing. And my dad would say, well, you're not everybody else. But we want a king because everybody else has a king. Samuel actually warned the people, God's people, the Israelites. He says, it is going to be more challenging for you if you have a king because God wants you to trust in him more than he does mankind. In 1 Samuel 8, 18, The prophet Samuel says, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But we still want a king. So what did God do? God gave them the desires of their heart and God gave them a king to rule over them. Now, consequently, sometimes God is going to give you what you want to show you what you really need. That's a sermon for another day. I'm going to preach that sometime because there's just so much richness in there. Sometimes God will give you what you want, but it really wasn't his plan But he's going to give you the desires of your heart to unearth in you this realization that what you really needed was something that he was yearning for you to get. So what does Samuel do? He anoints Saul. He anoints Saul as the first king of Israel. Now, the first half of the book of 1 Samuel shows us this story of how Saul is eventually going to be disobedient to God, and that disobedience is going to take him off the throne. Saul's specific moment of disobedience is going to come when the Israelites are going to fight and they're going to defeat the Amalekites, this evil people. And God specifically tells him, when you defeat the Amalekites, I want you to destroy all of their livestock. I don't want you to leave any stone unturned. I want you to destroy everything. But this is what Saul chooses to do in 1 Samuel 15, verses 9 through 11. Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me. He has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. See, Saul tried to rationalize that he was doing the right thing. Saul tried to rationalize it saying, why would I destroy all of the good things? There had to be some use for them. And God is saying, no, I desired for you to be obedient to what I ask you to do, opposed to trying to take matters into your own hands. And so as a result of that disobedience, Saul was removed from the throne. And it was that that set the stage for this I Am David series. It was that moment that set the stage for David to ultimately come into power. Specifically, you can see here, if you like to take notes, we give you some notes that you can fill in the blanks there. Specifically, you see in this story that King Saul's failures served as the backdrops for David's anointing. King Saul's failures served as the backdrop for David's anointing. 1 Samuel 16 is the primary text that we're going to be looking at for the next few minutes. Starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your, uh, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, something that might not make sense to you and I are how the failures of other people often serve as the backdrop as to why we're appointed or why we are set apart. In fact, some of you realize this all too well because you're in a position right now in your company or maybe you're in a position in ministry where you're thriving because the person before you was disobedient and you were able to step into that. Now, vice versa. Sometimes our lack of obedience means that God's gonna move us out of the way and put somebody in the position that will be obedient. Our lack of obedience might open the door for someone else. God is saying, I yearn for you to be obedient to me first. And if you're not going to be obedient to me, then I have ways that I'm going to 
move you to another assignment, and perhaps there's somebody else that will be obedient to what I've asked him to do. And that kind of sounds harsh for some of us, and I don't intend for it to sound too harsh because it's true. It's hard for us to fathom, but the way that the sovereign God, our sovereign God works isn't always understood by our finite level of understanding. He uses all things, and he uses your obedience, and he uses your lack of obedience to accomplish his plans, just like he did with Saul, like he was going to do with David, and like he has done in our lives probably more times than we can count. But Samuel receives this commission that Saul's going to come off the throne and you need to go to Bethlehem to see Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Picking back up in verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. God says, you are to anoint the one that I indicate. And when you read this, you realize that this sounds a lot different than the coronation of King Saul. Because why did King Saul come into power? What were the people shouting? We want a king. I I thought about having you guys do that with me this morning, but that just sounds really weird. Um, You know, they're shouting, we want a king, we want a king, and God gives them the king. It was driven by the people, and now God is saying, I want you to listen to me because I'm going to appoint someone. I'm the one who's going to do the anointing. I'm going to set my chosen vessel apart, and I'm going to show you, Samuel, the next step that you need to take. I'm the one who's doing the work. Perhaps this morning you forgot that God's the one doing the work in your life. Perhaps you have forgot that God's the one who is at work in your life. He's the one who is directing your steps. Or maybe you forgot this morning that God has a plan for you, If your life is anything like mine, I move into the really complicated parts of my day, and sometimes I skip over the most elementary parts of it. I'm over here trying to formulate a plan, realizing that I have forgotten altogether. God has a plan for me, and God has a plan for you. And let's don't move past those rudimentary truths, because what do we tend to do? We we try to take matters into our own hands, don't we? And we try to figure things out from our own perspective. Have you ever had a GPS in your car, but you chose to not use it because you trusted your memory more than GPS and you find yourself needing some course correction because there's a, there, there's a little bit of pride that settles in and you think, I am smarter than this computer. I am smarter than this system. I have been on this road hundreds of times. There's no possible way that I could get lost. And God's reminding us that he doesn't need us to trust in our own power. He doesn't need us to trust in our own skill set. In fact, he doesn't need us to come up with our own plans. He doesn't need us to chart our own destiny. He's the one that is doing that. And friends, he certainly doesn't need to be reminded of your strengths and weaknesses. Why? Because he gave you all those. Every skill that you have is something that came from him, and every flaw that you see in your life right now is something that he still desires to use. So this story reminds us of this truth that you and I hopefully are growing in and that I'm hopefully leaning into as a leader, and that's that God's plans are always the best plans. God's plans are always the best plans. Humans' plans are not always the best plans. I I think that somewhere deep down we actually know this, And we actually believe this deep down in our hearts, but it's hard for us to bring it to the surface sometimes. Maybe you're in a situation right now where you're examining your own life and what your purpose is, and you're seeking to make a decision to walk with God, or you're seeking to make some kind of decision in your career or your ministry, and you're trusting in yourself more than you are Him. 
Or perhaps you're walking with someone else. There's someone else in your life right now that needs um, to be more obedient to what God's having them do, does God's desiring for them to do, and you're seeking to walk with them. And if you're not careful, what would happen is you'll allow your human logic or you'll allow your human understanding to supersede God's understanding and to supersede God's plan. But see, God's plans are the best plans, which also means that God's plan for my life is better than my plan for my life. In fact, I have never seen my finite mind be able to come up with a plan that's better than his. If you have, please stick around afterwards. I'd like to know what the secret sauce is. If you've been able in your life to figure out how your finite mind can come up with a plan that can supersede God's plan, his best plan and provision for you, then please share because I don't think it's possible. So why don't we all commit this morning to invest and invite him into leading every facet of our life, that whatever he would desire to do, whatever it is that we might be searching for, that we would say, Lord, direct our steps, because I trust in you, and I trust that you really do know what's best for me, and that you really do have the best plan for me. So Samuel keeps going on in the work. He knows now that he has to go and find the one that the Lord has appointed, and that's where we pick back up in verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his son and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There still is the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. See, we're all of a sudden back on the playground, aren't we? We're all of a sudden back on the fourth grade playground. Because Samuel had received a commission from God to go and find the new appointed king because Saul is no longer king. And so he goes to Jesse's house because the Lord tells him that's where he is to go. And Jesse's sons arrive and they start parading before Samuel. Keep in mind, God had said the new king is going to come from here. And these sons start parading in front of Samuel. Who does Samuel see first? Eliab. What do we hear about Eliab? Uh, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and saw, surely the Lord's appointed stands here before the Lord. But in the Lord said in verse 7, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Eliab is the tallest of all the brothers. And he says, well, this must be the one. Nope. Well, then all of a sudden, Abinadab walks through. Nope. And then Shema works through, nope. And then there's seven additional sons, nope. And you have to wonder at this moment in time, Samuel's probably thinking, did I hear God right? Maybe there was another Jesse in another town called Bethlehem 
that I missed. You know, it's kind of like Paris, Tennessee, Paris, France. You know, I'm, in, I, I'm over here looking in Paris, Tennessee, and the Lord actually wanted me to be over in, in Paris, France. Did I, did I get the message wrong? Because God, what I did is I started my search with the tallest guy with the best resume, and I just kept going through the list. And person after person, you said, no, that's not the one. And it gets to the point where Samuel just comes right out and says, is it possible that someone's not here? Is it possible that there's someone that didn't make it here to kind of parade in front of me to see if he's the one? Samuel arrived and he immediately thought, the one that God wants to use must be the tallest guy, the one with the best pedigree, the one that was the best looking, the fastest, the smartest, the brightest. But what do we know about God? This is what we know about God. God's economy is always different than mankind's evaluation. God's economy is always different than mankind's evaluation. And you're saying, is this a financial point that you're trying to teach us with the word economy? Now, this isn't a financial use of the word economy. This is saying that God measures things differently than we do. God measures things very differently than we do. See, God calls things successes that you might call failures. Do you ever stop to think about that? Sometimes what the world might say is an abysmal failure was a grand success in God's economy. God sometimes tells us and reminds us, don't look over the people that the world would throw to the wayside because I have an amazing plan that I want to accomplish through them. I'm evaluating on a completely different level than you are because what does man look at? He looks at the outward appearance. And what does God look at? He looks at the heart. I'm actually not sure if there's a verse of scripture that more clearly defines the promise that God has given us that he wants to use us regardless of what we have to offer than this passage of scripture right here because people are always gonna be drawn to the outward appearance. And rather, God says, no, I look at the heart. People will always assume that if you're smarter than me, then God must want to use you more than he wants to use me. Or if you're more talented than him, then God must want to use you more than he wants to use him. And that's not the way that God's economy works. In my life, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of people in fact, one of the greatest joys of my life has been working with some people that the world might have looked over and that the world might have looked over as insignificant. Some of you in the room will, will know this person that I'm talking about because there's few people that wanted the work of Rolling Hills to succeed more than Sarah Ezel. Sarah Ezel was an amazing woman of God. In fact, she wanted these regional campuses to work more than anybody. She was the first person to sign up when we said, uh, you, we're going to go out and start something outside of Franklin, and we're going to start these campuses. And at that moment in time, she had no idea what she was even signing up to. She was a pioneer. She was one of the first people to say, I'm in. She was one of the first people to say, I'm in with my investment, I'm in with my resources, and I'm certainly in with my talents and my gifts. The Lord took Sarah home a couple of years ago, and I, I'm so sorry for those of you that didn't get the privilege of knowing her because she was truly a gem, a spitfire, but a gem, which is kind of my favorite person in the world, to be honest. Just a sweet, precious lady. What you need to know about Sarah is Sarah lived her entire adult life, most of her life actually confined to a wheelchair because of handicaps and disabilities and brittle bone disease. But you know, that didn't stop her from serving in kids ministry every week. As long as I can remember Sarah, there was not a Sunday that she was in town that she was not serving 
in our family ministry at Rolling Hills, she would actually tell us, God had me there to show these kids that people were made different. One of her catchphrases, I can hear it. Do you know when somebody you're really close to, you can hear their phrases and you can hear their, you can hear their, their statements in your mind. One of the things that she used to always say, and it has always stuck with me, and it's a quote. She would, say these, she would tell to these kids at the beginning of every year, God gave some of us legs and God gave some of us wheels. And I thought, what an amazing testament to that the world would have said, hmm, no, you, you stay over here. Your place is over here. And Sarah says, no, I, my, my place is being faithful to what the Lord has asked me to do. Now, Sarah was extremely accomplished. She worked for Vanderbilt University. She had advanced degrees from Vanderbilt University. But the last conversation I ever had with Sarah was at church. The last time we ever spoke, and she died a couple days after this conversation, the last time we ever spoke, she was wheeling out of the church, and she would be okay with me saying it that way. She was wheeling out of the church, and she said, I'm excited about serving at Vacation Bible School. The last words I ever heard her say was, I'm excited about serving. You know, when I hear people talk about all the reasons that they can't serve or all of the reasons that, you know, they can come up with as to why I'm not gifted enough or why I'm not smart enough or whatever the case might be, I often think to myself, I wish you could have known Sarah. (laughs) I wish you could have interacted with her. And there have been so many others. Let us never forget, though, that God doesn't choose us based on what the world sees in us, but what he sees in our hearts. It's so short-sighted of us to think, and in fact, we have a really small view of God if we think that God can only work through human systems of importance and human systems of value that we created. God's not bound by human evaluations, and God's not bound by the human evaluation that you've placed on yourself as well. When I reflect upon how Jesus lived his life and the mission that he embodied, there's such a striking similarity to the way that Jesus lived and how Samuel chose ultimately David. The model of ministry that Jesus showed us is so similar to what we're studying here and what we're going to be studying over the course of the summer. Because what did Jesus do? When Jesus entered a crowd of people, who was he drawn to? He was drawn to the downtrodden. He was drawn to the people caught in the act of adultery. He was drawn to the ones who were sick. He was drawn to the ones who had made mistakes. He was drawn to the prostitutes. In fact, some of Jesus's harshest words were against religious elite. Some of his harshest words were against the people who sat back and thought they had no character flaws. And Jesus wanted us to lean in and remind ourselves that, no, we're all imperfect and that we all have our struggles. Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Philippians 2, 7, and 8 reminds us of this truth, that he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He became obedient to death for each and every one of us. Not just good people, but everyone. Because the sick, Jesus said the sick are the ones who really need a physician. The ones who are not well are the ones that I came to make right. And so God's plan to make everyone right started with the gift of salvation. In fact, that is God's primary plan for your life this morning, is that you would know him and that you would trust in him and that you would confess the fact that you have sin in your life and that that sin separates you from a loving and a holy God. But in addition to that, God has an individual plan for you, an individual plan that perfectly fits your skills and perfectly fits your strengths and your passions. But know that God's design for you 
in God's assignments that he has for you, the world may look over you for that. But God is saying, no, I, I, I perfectly knit you together for that. And I have an assignment that I see. And I see your skill. The world might not see it, but I see it. Actually, it's so interesting to me in this passage of Scripture. And, and I thought about how to word this. And the most interesting way that I could word it for you is that God's chosen vessel might be someone who didn't receive an invitation to the party. God's chosen vessel might very well be someone that didn't receive an invitation to the party. Because who didn't get an invitation to this party? The guy who was ultimately picked. Go back to verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? They're still the youngest. Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent him and had him brought in. And he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. When you think about Jesse, Jesse must have had a nine-passenger van and had to leave somebody back. He thought, I mean, surely they're going to pick one of these guys, not David. I mean, we're not even going to give David the memo that we're going. The one that God had appointed didn't even get a chance to parade before Samuel to see if he was the one that would be picked. He was young, and he stayed in the field tending the sheep. Some of you are thinking right now, you know, God doesn't have a plan for me. It's a lie that the enemy wants us to believe about ourselves, that God doesn't have a plan for me. And there's a myriad of reasons as to why you could come up with that. It might be the past mistakes that you've made. It might be lies that the enemy has sowed or seeds of doubt that he has sown in your mind. Or, or perhaps you, you don't see yourself as a person of influence or you don't see yourself as a person with any kind of platform that we've been talking about in our last series that the Lord desires to leverage. Maybe you see yourself as, I, I don't really have anything to offer. I don't have anything that the world can use. Well, neither did David. And the Lord chose to use him. Some of you are saying to yourself, you know what? I never have a seat at the table because I always get looked over. I feel like God can use me, but why is everyone just looking over me? Why is no one seeing the contributions that I'm making? You know who is seeing the contributions you're making? God is. The world might not be seeing those contributions. God is seeing the contributions that you're making. And he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Some of you are saying, I don't have a lot to offer. How could God possibly use me? Let me let you in on a little secret. This scripture is filled from start to finish with really broken people being used by God. In fact, if you think to be used by God means that you have to have some level of perfection, we would all be precluded. If, if it was based on how perfect and how good and how right we were, we would not have an opportunity at all. But that's why in the Lord's loving kindness, he made a way for us to be made right and for us to be able to have a plan that God uniquely designed for us. So I want you to hold your head up high in confidence this morning and allow God to write whatever story he wants to write in your life. Don't hold your head up in confidence because of your own skill set, but hold your head up in confidence because the Lord desires to do something that only he can do. Now, there is one determining factor in here that if we leave it out, we're really not giving the full scale of what's going on in this story. In fact, I could stop right here and completely lead you astray because I could just stop here and the pastor said, oh yeah, I just gotta have confidence and we're gonna charge and go forward. But there's a part of this that you can't miss. There's a part of this that actually changed the course of history and it comes in right at the end of verse 13. 
And then the Lord says in verse 12, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came up on David in power. The spirit of the Lord came up on David in power. See, the Holy Spirit being with us, that's what truly makes all the difference. What's the game-changing truth in this? It's the Holy Spirit coming into our life that makes all the difference. It's the Holy Spirit that's guiding us and leading us. It's what really sets us apart, what really makes it unique, and what really gives us the opportunity that we have to step in to what God has called us to do is the Holy Spirit working through us. God working through us is what makes us useful. Because what do you and I bring to the table? I mean, how much time do we have to talk about it, right? What do you and I bring to the table? Well, let's see. Let's say we bring our sin to the table. We bring our, our flaws. We bring our shortcomings. We bring our skills. We bring our resources. We bring a lot of good. We bring a lot of struggles. We bring a lot of everything in between. But what does God do? God comes and he gives us his spirit. And it is his spirit that makes it possible for a broken guy like me to fulfill my calling. It is only his spirit that gives you, a broken vessel, an opportunity to be used. It is only through God's spirit that he gives us the opportunities as a church to go out of these doors here in a little bit and to tell our friends and to tell our neighbors and to tell our family members, God did not create you for insignificance. God created you and he has an amazing, beautiful plan for your life. And it starts with you realizing that you can't be made right in yourself, but that you have to trust him. The Holy Spirit is what makes all the difference. Some of you this morning, you may have thought, you know what, Pastor Jason, I didn't need to hear any of this. I already got it all figured out. Thank you. Check, you've arrived. Some of us are not there, though. Some of us needed to be reminded this morning. Some of us need to be reminded that regardless of where we are in the thick of things right now, that God has a plan and that God is working and that the world may have looked over you and God is saying, no, I see your heart. A question that David would ultimately answer really well is one that you and I have to answer every day. And that question simply put is, is your heart in the right place? Is your heart in the right place? Throughout this study over the summer, we're going to be referring to David as a man after God's own heart. And being a man after God's own heart, David still made some mistakes. David still made some mistakes. In fact, we have our elementary students in here with us today. Uh, we specifically have you guys in here this week because a little bit later on, there's some things that are not so kid-friendly in this passage of Scripture, some mistakes that David makes. But yet even in the midst of all of his flaws, he continues to pursue God, and he's a man who's following God's heart. In fact, quite a bit of time passed between this anointing and David actually being coronated as the king. Most biblical scholars would say that from this moment that we're reading in 1 Samuel chapter 16, about 15 years passed from him actually receiving this anointing and then actually stepping into the, the, the royal throne, if you will. So are you willing to be patient to do what God has called you to do? Or are you wanting it to happen overnight? How about God placing a call on your life and God hasn't moved with the immediacy that you wanted him to? Are you okay with that? See, David was. David said, I'm going to be faithful and my heart's going to be in the right place regardless of the timing that God chooses to operate under. David eventually is going to be introduced to King Saul. 
they're going to have their meeting, and it's recorded here in the end of 1 Samuel chapter 16, because Saul is going to be at a really miserable place in his life, and he's going to need some reprieve. And so David, this young shepherd boy, knows how to play the harp as well. I mean, of course he does. He's a true Renaissance man, right? I mean, what shepherd doesn't know how to play the harp? Saul's going to need some reprieve. He's going to need some kind of, um, he's going to need something to calm him down and to give him some sense of peace. And so they say, the, the David, the one that the newly appointed king, he, he knows how to play the harp. So let's get him in here to play for King Saul. In 1 Samuel 16, 19, read this, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. If you'd like to underline in your Bible, which is okay for you to do, highlight, underline that phrase, who is with the sheep. It's so significant because David had just been appointed king, but what was he doing? Was he waiting around on kingly things? No. He got back in the van that he wasn't invited to be on in the first place and goes back to the shepherd's field and tends the flock. See, maybe the Lord has placed a calling on your life this morning and you know, you thought it would just be immediately answered with no delays. And the Lord is saying, no, I need you to continue to be faithful where you are because I'm writing a story. So don't just sit around and wait, but keep taking step by step into what it is that I'm desiring to do. So I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe there's a character in this story that you identify with, or maybe there's a principle here that the Lord is bringing to your mind that he wants you to lean into and he wants you to grow into. I started today by asking you a question. Does God have something else that he's looking for? Or does God give us our assignments based on how the world operates? Does God have a different um, economy that he's operating under? Or does God just give people assignments based on the way that you and I might pick people for assignments? You bet God has something else that he's looking for. You can know with the highest degree of confidence that God has something that he's looking for in our lives. And my prayer is that we would grow in those qualities. And when we do, when we grow in those qualities, friends, we stand in amazement to see what he does. And we get to stand in amazement to see the story that he writes because of our faithfulness, step by step, day by day. That's my hope and that's my prayer for each and every one of us here this morning. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And perhaps this morning you're here and you need to be reminded that the Lord wants your heart or maybe your heart's just not in the right place this morning, and today would be the day when you say, you know, I, I, want, to, I want to quit just living this, this life that's all about me, or I want to quit living this life where I'm seeking to find hope and meaning in the things of this world, but that I would ultimately find it in Him. And so if your heart this morning is in need of a little care, maybe during this last song you'll sing these words as a prayer to God to say, Lord, hear my heart. Here it is, Lord. Speak life into me. Reorient my life around you and not around the things of this world. Or maybe you're here this morning and you have wanted with all of your life to make a difference and you just haven't seen what it is that God would desire to do. Pray this morning, say, Lord, help me to be faithful whether it's with a little or whether it's with it's a lot, I want to be faithful to you. So speak to us, Lord, in this time. Work in a way that only you can. And we're so grateful for who you are, and we're grateful for your presence in this place. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.